Our passage today is going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51 through 1037. Words will be up there on the screen, um, or you can use one of the pew Bibles in the back of the pews if you don't have one, or you can join along uh, with me in your own. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 10, verses 37. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do what you want us, or do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to, you, to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Cherazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirit are, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us your word here as you sent out your disciples with a message. I pray that as we look at, at this particular passage this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, would you help me as I seek to rightly uh, communicate what your word says uh, to us today. I pray that you would guide my words as well. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Parents, particularly, I'm sure that at some point you have sent one of your kids, especially if you have multiple kids, that you've sent one of your kids to relay a message to other kids, right? Perhaps you're watching the game, perhaps you're laying down for a nap, and you need one of your kids to know something, and so you don't want to yourself go and communicate that, and so you get, you know, whatever kid is closest by, and you say, hey, go tell, you know, for me, hey, Ryder, go tell Josie uh, this, 
I need them to know that. <clears throat> now, parents, why do we do this? I mean, how often does this actually work? There's, it's, it's rife with difficulties, right? Uh, you got a lot of different things that can go wrong. First, your kids can fail to understand the point of your message, right? Misquote you. Later, you say, well, why didn't you do this to the child that the message was for? And they say, well, that's not what my brother or my sister told me. What do you mean? That's what I told them to tell you. <laughs> How do you determine? <clears throat> or the kid just never tells them at all. You know what it's like, you know, hey, go tell Johnny in the backyard uh, to come in, and you, the kid that gets sent on the message goes out there and finds Johnny playing a fun game, and, and then, you know, 30 minutes later, they're both out there playing the game still. Well, I thought you to I told you to come in. Well, this game looked more fun than communicating the message. Or, one of my favorites, with the new sense of authority that they have, they communicate the correct message, content-wise, with the wrong tone. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know, uh, jo Josie, tell Ryder to stop playing the switch. Okay, Dad. Then two seconds later, Ryder, turn off the switch now, or else you're going to be grounded. It's like, I didn't say any of that. <laughs> what in the world? I'm using my kids. My kids aren't here this morning. They're at Grandma and Grandpa's house, so I can use them as examples, right? Not that I'm saying that any of these things have ever happened, but they have. Or one of, one of the saddest, Josie will try to tell Silas to do something, you know, something that he ought to do. She'll get it all right, but Silas is just like, nope, you're not, you're not an authority over me. I'm not going to listen. And Josie comes, Dad, I, I tried to tell him and I was trying to, why doesn't he listen to me? Why, when you say it, he listens, but when I say it, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm dad. I, don't, I, I have an authority, I suppose, given by God, and it just works in a way that sister authority doesn't work. All that to say, in Jesus' wisdom, in God's will and purpose, he sends disciples as messengers before him. He has shown his disciples, here is the message. They have seen him go from town to town saying, this is the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is near. And then in our passage, he sends them out before him to give that message. And I'm thinking in my head, this does not seem like a good decision. And yet, in God's perfect will, this is how He has decided to do it. We are His messengers. This is the, that's the, 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 the main point, the bottom line I want you to get this morning is this. Followers of Jesus are messengers for Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand you are a messenger for Jesus. You are uh, bearing that banner, all the time. We are messengers. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And so we're going to look at four aspects of the messenger's task 
this morning. The purpose of the messenger, the responsibility of the messenger, the authority of the messenger, and the heart of the messenger. Well, the purpose of the messenger, what is the messenger's purpose? And we see this in verses 51 through 56 of chapter 9. We get this initial story, and it gives us some clarity on what the purpose is. It says here in verse 51 that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, I've told you before that the book of Luke, and really Luke and Acts is a kind of a uh, two-book set, are geographically structured. And so Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee, and even though we know uh, chronologically he's gone to Jerusalem and come back to Galilee and whatever, the way that Luke kind of sets the stage is this is this critical point, Luke 9, 51 is this critical point when Jesus for the first time sets his face to Jerusalem. Now he is going to do the thing that he came to earth to do. And what we'll see if you continue to pay attention as we read through Luke and as we preach through it, there'll be these moments where Jesus will say, where, where Luke will say, and Jesus was going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going to Jerusalem. These are key markers in the text. <clears throat> and so we start, this is what starts it right here in Luke 9.51. What does it mean that he sets his face to Jerusalem? It's an idiom that basically means that he has determined to accomplish a task. When you set your face to something, it was a, a Jewish idiom, right, that, that you have determined to accomplish this task. This is your single-minded focus. So that's what Jesus has done, to go to Jerusalem and accomplish what we heard Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration talking to Jesus about last week. And it says that he sends his disciples before him, and, and, and they send them to a Samaritan village. They go to a Samaritan village, and they're rejected. And why are they rejected there? Because Jesus' face is set to Jerusalem. That's what it says. It says the reason they were rejected is because of Jesus' face being set to Jerusalem, because of his purpose. Now, does that mean that they rejected Jesus because by their will they choose, chose to reject him? Or does that mean that they rejected Jesus because by God's sovereignty, it was to bring about God's plan? My answer to that question is yes. Yes in both. And we must learn to hold both those things at the same time because the Bible does all the way through. Now, James and John's response is, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? They have rejected us. They have, they have not received us. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And, and, and Jesus rebukes them, and we read over that, and we think, well, of course he rebuked them. That's ridiculous. Why would, why would they ever want to call down fire from heaven? What a, what a crazy response. And that's exactly what I thought when I first read it. But then I started to look at it a little bit more. And I want you to understand that this response is actually not as crazy as we in our 21st century minds think. In fact, James and John here are exhibiting an incredible amount of faith and devotion to Christ. You think, well, that's how in the world could that be? They're, they're wanting to call down fire from heaven. That's ridiculous, Cody. How are they showing a great amount of faith and devotion to Christ? Let me explain. 
Let me explain. They are thinking of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1. You should write that down. You can read the whole story later. It'll only take you about three minutes. I'll explain it in short, okay? In 2 Kings chapter 1, we find a short story, and, and, the, and what happens is there's a king, the king of Samaria, right? It's not coincidental in this story that we have the king of Samaria, that we have rejection of God, that we have fire being called down from heaven, that we have Elijah, which Luke has referenced a dozen times already in his book, right? So we're, we're bringing all these kind of things together. So the king of Samaria is sick and all, is basically on his deathbed, and this king sends out messengers to inquire what his fate will be. And he sends those messengers not to God, but to Beelzebub, it says. And Beelzebub, we're going to see, and next week, I believe it is, comes up in this passage again. Again, so many connecting points that say this is what Luke is referring to here. This is what James and John are thinking of. And so the king of Samaria sends messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, what will happen to him. And so as these messengers go out, God comes to Elijah. Elijah's chilling somewhere, I don't really know. And he's sitting there and God comes and he says, hey, Elijah, uh, the king of Samaria, this is what he's up to. <clears throat> I want you to go. I want you to intercept his messengers and give them a message. And so that's what Elijah does. He gets up, he finds the messengers as, as they're on their way to, um, to inquire of Beelzebub, and he says this, he says, is there no God in Israel that you go to the God of Ekron instead? Essentially, king, you go tell your king, is there, is there no God in Israel that you would go to Beelzebub to find out rather than coming to the God, the true God, the most high God, and pleading your case with Him. And so that's what they do. Essentially what Elijah says is, you have rejected the most high God for this other God. And, the, and then he tells them, and tell the king, because you did that, you will surely die. That's what God says. And so that's what they do. They go back to the king. They tell him that. The king figures out. He goes, well, what's this guy look like? They, they describe him. The king figures out, that's Elijah. And so the king knows Elijah. The king knows who Elijah is, that he's a prophet of the Most High God. He could have gone. He could have sent the messengers to Elijah, but he didn't. And so he says, go to Elijah. I want 50 of you with a captain. I want you to go to Elijah and, and get him to come to me. And so that's what they do. The captain comes to Elijah. Elijah's sitting up on a, on, a, on a mount somewhere, just chilling again. He's just doing that all the time, apparently. And, and the captain says, hey, hey, come down. The king of Samaria says, come down. And a uh, man of God, come down. And, and Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may God call down fire from heaven and consume you. And that's what happens. And all 50 of the people are consumed by fire. And then a second captain comes, the same thing happens. You know, man of God, come down and see the king of Samaria. And, and, and Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And that's what happens. And so the third captain gets sent, right? And now this captain has gotten a little bit wise to what's going on. And he comes and instead of saying what the king told him to say, he says, oh, oh man of God, may my life be precious in your sight. And Elijah goes, okay, I'll come down. And he goes to the king 
and he gives the king the message himself. You see, Jesus rebukes them, but why? Does he rebuke them because it's ridiculous that someone should be judged with fire for rejecting Christ? No, that's exactly the judgment they deserve. That's exactly the judgment that is deserved for rejecting the Most High God. Does he rebuke them because it's presumptuous of them to think that they are prophets of God like Elijah is? No. Actually, that's exactly what they are. That's exactly what God is sending them out as. They know exactly what their responsibility is. They understand exactly the kind of authority and power that God has given them. I mean, think about the faith that they would have to say, in all sincerity, if you say the word, Jesus, I know that fire will come down from heaven, that we could call down fire from heaven to consume this village. They're just misguided with it because they misunderstand the purpose that Christ has. They misunderstand Jesus' present purpose, and so they misunderstand their present purpose. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. Why? You see, the king of Samaria did not come to God for mercy to save his life, but now the king of kings has come to you, come to us, to obtain mercy on our behalf, to give his own life for mercy's sake. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem for mercy, not mercy in opposition to justice. You need to understand that in Scripture, mercy is not in opposition to justice ever. Mercy is a part of justice. It is a part of justice. You can't have mercy outside of justice. What you have instead is injustice. And God can't do that. And so his options are either to rightly bring justice on whoever has rejected him or to offer mercy to them. So whether we reject or accept, this story in 2 Kings 1 has set the stage that if we reject or accept, it will be a witness against us one day when Jesus returns. But right now is not the time to call down fire from heaven. Right now is the time to call out mercy from heaven. That is the time that we are in. And so there's clarity of purpose, but there's also priority of purpose. And we can, I'll just share this briefly in verses 57 to 62, because there's just, I'm just going to be honest, there's a lot going on in this passage, and we're just going to hit the high notes and I'm going to try to clarify the places that I think need to be clarified. We're not going to get, be able to get to everything that I would love to talk about in this passage. But in verses 57 to 62, I think there's, it shows us a priority of per, per, purpose. Uh, that's a tongue twister. And what we have is, is this paragraph of three, with three different interactions between Jesus and potential followers of his. And, and each one brings a kind of a question. First, the first interaction is this. The, the potential follower says, I will follow you wherever. And Jesus says, you don't get it. I have nowhere to lay my head. And so we see in that, that that everything else in life is a distant second to this purpose. 
for those who would follow Christ. Everything else in your life is a distant second to being a messenger for Christ if you were to follow him. Second question is this, let me bury my father. And Jesus responds, let the dead bury the dead. You go. And that seems a little bit harsh, but we need to understand what Jesus is talking about. I, I honestly, I didn't understand this at, at, at the time because we do things differently today than they did in the first century. And so basically what would happen is someone would die, you would put their dead body in the tomb, and then you would wait a whole year. And after a year was done, you would open the tomb up, you would get their bones, you would put it in a, a box, and then you would permanently bury that. So there was a reburial that would happen after a year. And so what this guy is asking is, someone is important to me, so a relative has died, I'm waiting for the year to happen so I can rebury their bones. Can I wait until that's done and then follow you? And Jesus says, look, there are other people to do that. If you want to follow me, you need to follow me now. And so there's a sense of urgency to this message. You're worried about reburying people's bones and people are dying not knowing me right now. Third, third person says, let me say farewell. Let me go back and say farewell to my family. Jesus responds, no one puts the hand to the plow and looks back. What happens if you're sowing seed and you look back? I've never sown seed before. I'm going to be honest. I've never done it. I've never ran a, you know, a tractor and I've just, I've just never done it, but, I've, but I know enough to know that if, that if I look back and not forward, I don't sow straight, do I? Lot's wife looked back at Sodom. Israel looked back at Egypt when they wandered in the wilderness. It's not that Jesus says, oh, don't care about your family, don't say bye to them. The point is, Jesus' messengers are singularly focused on Christ and on His purpose. And so there's a priority of purpose. Jesus' purpose must be our highest purpose if we're to follow Christ. And He's come for mercy's sake to make a way for reconciliation. 2 Corinthians tells us this. I think really clearly Paul, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Church, that's us. He has reconciled you to Himself and He has given you a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Since we have been reconciled, our job is to go out with that message. The gospel take it throughout the world in order that it says the world would be reconciled to him. The world, the word there in the Greek is cosmos, meaning all of creation. 
Do you understand the vastness of what Christ is doing through you, church? Not just reconciling individual people, but reconciling the cosmos. That is, reconciling all of creation to Himself. That Romans 8 says that because we have sinned, all of creation groans under that weight and awaits the reconciliation of Christ. What are we to do then? Well, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. And in this middle section, we see the sending of the 72 and then then the 72 coming back. And in in the first 11 verses, we're going to see the responsibility that they are given by Christ. And then towards the end, in verses 17 to 24, we're going to see the authority that they had been given in Christ. And there's going to be this little bit in the middle, and it's really the center of this entire passage, verses 12 to 16, where the authority and the responsibility are going to overlap. And hopefully I'll explain that well to you, but I want to tell it to you beforehand so you know kind of where we're going. So overall, responsibility and authority, we need to understand, go together. A person with authority who does not take responsibility is out of line. I want you to understand that. I think this is universally true in Scripture. This is how God has designed the world, that if you have authority, but you refuse to take responsibility, you are out of line. But also, if you give someone responsibility without the corresponding authority to go with it, it's wrong. God won't do that. He does not give you responsibility And not give you the authority that you need to fulfill that responsibility. If you think you need more authority, what you're probably doing is taking more responsibility than you ought. So the responsibility of the messenger here seems really high, does it not? Right? I just said people are are dying. There's an urgency because people are dying right now apart from Christ. This, this, this is life and death. This responsibility seems too, too big. Sharing the gospel with others has huge stakes. I don't know about you, but sometimes it causes me to freeze up. It causes me to go, oh, who am I? Who am I? I'm, I'm just going to mess this up. It's a, it's a big responsibility, but But what I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus' yoke is actually easier and lighter than it it appears at first. Look at Jesus' instructions here. First, I want you to see that our responsibility, while we do have responsibility, our responsibility depends on God's promises. Verse 2, it says that God says that the harvest is plentiful. That's His promise to us. Yes, we have a responsibility to go and reap the, the harvest, but yet His promise is the harvest is plentiful. You don't have to worry about the harvest being plentiful. I take care of that, He says. Then in verse 3, it says pray, okay? Our responsibility is to pray, but God promises there to be the Lord of the harvest and to send out laborers. God does that. God does that. Okay, verse 3, continuing, we go our way, right? Okay, we need to go. That's our responsibility. But it's God who sends us where we need to be. We don't have to dwell on, oh, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Wherever you are, be a messenger right there. God takes care of that. You can be assured. 
That's not your responsibility to bear on your shoulders. You don't have to carry that weight. God does. Continuing at the end of verse 3, it says, We are to be lambs among wolves. And that's scary. You know, we don't, we don't convert by the sword. You can't coerce someone in that way to be a follower of Christ. There's risk. There's real risk in being a messenger. But this, this passage, it's actually referring to passages in Isaiah. Isaiah eleven six, 6, Isaiah 65, 25 both of which say that in Messiah's kingdom, in the kingdom that, that we have already established in the book of Luke, Christ is bringing in, right? We've, we've talked about this. This is the kingdom. This is the messianic age that, that Christ is ushering in in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. And it says that in that kingdom, Isaiah says that, that, he will, that God will cause wolves to lie down with lambs. God promises that wolves' hearts will be changed. That wolves whose natural inclination is for the throat of the lamb. That God will change their hearts. Cause them to lie down with lambs. And that good shepherd, the good shepherd will protect us in the ways that we need to be protected. That's God's promise not our responsibility. Verse 4, it says that God will provide for us, right? Carry no money bag, no knapsack. Now, now later on, he, he'll tell them to, to do that in a different way. Later on, he'll tell them to actually take provisions. But the point here isn't, isn't whether or not we need to leave our sandals at home when we go on our trip to share the gospel, right, or whatever. The point is that God provides what we need for what he calls us to do, in the time that He's calling us to do it. That's God's promise. And so our, we do have responsibility, but our responsibility is wholly founded on the promises of God, not on ourselves. Second thing I want you to see here in Jesus' instructions to the 72, uh, our responsibility is to proclaim God's message. Jesus gives instructions to go uh, to a town, right? When you come to a town, uh, implied here, there is a public proclamation of the message of the kingdom. That when they come to the town, they are publicly proclaiming the message of the kingdom. That's the purpose of what they're doing. And then one of two things will happen, Jesus says. Either the message will be received, and thus the messenger will be received. And so you should, you know, you should go into the person's house. <coughs> they say, oh, I... I hear your message. I want to hear more. Come into my house. Stay with me. I'll give you a, a, a place to sleep. I'll give you some food. You tell me more about this Jesus you're speaking of. We don't do things in that way necessarily, hospitality-wise today, but the same general idea is there. The work is opened up, and God says, stay there, do that work as long as you have the opportunity. The second, oppor- the second thing that might happen is the message is rejected, and so, too, will the messengers be rejected, in which case, he says, wipe the dust off your feet against them, it says. Not just leave and go somewhere where it's, uh, uh, you know, you have a better chance of success, 
but actually wipe the dust of your feet off against them. What does that mean? It means that the rejectors of the message are culpable for their rejection, not the proclaimers. It means that either way, in either case, whether they reject it or whether they receive it, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, has come near to them. Do you see that in verse 9 and verse 11? That when they receive it, the kingdom of God comes near, and when they reject it, the kingdom of God has still come near. Because it depends on us proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, not on whether or not they reject or receive it. Either that gospel message, either that proclamation will be a means of salvation for them, that through it God might save them, or, or that proclamation of the gospel will be a witness against them on the day of judgment. Either way, the messenger has done their responsibility. You see, we often think that if the message is rejected, that we must have done something wrong. We often are told, I think, in the church, that if someone doesn't receive it, if they, you, you, did, you must have done something wrong. You must have said it wrong. You must have been, uh, had the wrong tone. You must not have explained it well. You didn't say it right. You weren't loving enough. You weren't nice enough. And we, we shared the gospel. You shared the gospel too quickly, maybe. You should have built more relationship with that person. And listen, I got no problem with building relationships with people before we share the gospel with them, or, or in sharing the gospel with them, rather. But it's interesting here, the message actually is proclaimed first, and then the hospitality happens. Then the relationship grows. The message precedes it, though. Jesus doesn't say, go to a town, hang out there, get to be good friends with them, and then share the gospel. He says, go to the town, proclaim the gospel. If they receive you, then continue in that. If they reject the message, then move on. Listen, I'm, I'm not saying that we, you know, we, we use the gospel to, to tick someone off intentionally, right? That misses the heart of the task, and we're going to get to that in a minute, the heart of the messenger. But, but we have to ask ourselves, if no one has ever shut me down or cut me off, because of my sharing the gospel with them, am I sharing the gospel the way Christ commanded the 72 to do it? Am I sharing the gospel the way that Christ commanded his disciples to do it in the Great Commission? Because it did happen to them every single time. Every single one of them had that happen. And I think that's a point that we ought to just sit and meditate on for just a second. If we have never had someone shut us down or cut us off because of our sharing the gospel with them, I don't think we're sharing the gospel the way that Christ has commanded us to. We're missing something. We're missing something. And so we come to this middle part, verses 12 to 16. And what we think we find here in the overlap of responsibility and authority is a limitation, a limitation for us. And this is good, 
a limitation to our responsibility and our authority. You see, the Samaritan stories begin and end our passage. And they illustrate the love of Christ revealed in His merciful actions. No, we won't send fire from heaven. Here's the heart of the messenger, and we'll get to that in a second, but, but it's one of mercy, right? But here in the center of the passage, and really the bulk of the passage, is surprisingly about God's judgment. The heart of the passage turns out to be judgment. And I think the love of Christ in the promise of judgment. And that seems odd to us because we're trained to think of mercy and judgment as opposed to one another. But they're not. James, John, you and me, we lack the responsibility or the authority to call down fire. Jesus will be the judge, jury, and executioner on the right day and in the right way. And so we don't have to concern ourselves because Jesus promises to take care of it in verses 12 to 15. He says, I tell you, that it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Meaning, Sodom did not have as much revelation as they have. Sodom did not know what they know. Sodom did not see Jesus himself walking on the earth. Sodom did not have what they have. And because of that, because they've rejected Christ, just like Sodom did, it will, it will actually be worse for them than Sodom. And just to bring the point home, here we have in verses 13 and 14 and 15, woe, woe, woe. If Tyre and Sidon had, had, had seen what you saw, had heard what you heard, they would have repented. But you didn't. The people who have greater clarity of the gospel on this side of Christ's coming will be more culpable of their rejection of Him than those before. The people who reject Jesus Himself are more culpable than those who rejected the prophets who spoke of Him. The people today, on this side of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, with the power of the Holy Spirit going forth throughout the world, they will be more culpable than even the people whom Jesus is speaking to here. It makes me think, makes me think about Judas, who followed Christ, who ate with Christ, who was sent out by Christ in this passage, who most assuredly cast out demons, who most assuredly shared the gospel of the kingdom in these cities and was either received or rejected, who had greater clarity, maybe than anyone who ever rejected Christ. What will it be like for him on that day? And for us who fancy ourselves followers of Christ, that ought to give us pause for a second to think. If Judas could go all that time following Jesus physically, 
hearing him, seeing him physically. And in the end, betray him, reject him. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. Will we follow him to the end? Will you follow Christ to the end? You have certainly received much greater clarity in the gospel, even sitting here today. than hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people before Christ ever walked on the earth. But why do I say that this promise of judgment is the love of Christ? Why do I say that? It seems, it seems odd in our day to equate judgment with love. And I think verse 16, which is, is really the very center of this, this, whole, this whole passage, helps us. You see, the rejection of these towns is not a rejection of the messenger, per se. It's a rejection of Christ and the Father. The object of their rejection is God, not us. And the weight of it God will bear, we don't have to. And the response to their rejection God will take up, you and I don't have to take it up. And friends, that frees us to communicate Christ's judgment rather than bringing Christ's judgment. You see what I'm saying? It frees us to communicate Christ's judgment and in that way also extend the mercy of Christ in our actions and our words rather than feeling like we need to bring the judgment of Christ in this situation. It's difficult to continue to extend Christ's mercy when you're being rejected and beaten and arrested and perhaps your friend has been killed and perhaps your friend has betrayed you. It's difficult. Now, we, we don't grasp that because frankly we live in... It's pretty comfortable. It's pretty comfortable. You read some of Paul's words about people who betrayed him, Demas who left him. He stood in trial and no one stood with him. And yet he said, and yet he extends the mercy of Christ. Listen, if you say, well, God's love should be enough to not seek vengeance on someone, I say, sure. Yes, but what is God's love if people wrong us and do evil and there's never any justice for it? How is that love? How could that possibly be loving? Either they must receive the mercy of Christ by faith and Jesus takes that just judgment on himself or they reject Christ, they reject his mercy, they reject what he's done for them and Jesus judges them Accordingly, just like the king of Samaria. You see, this promise that's not about us, it's not a rejection of us, it's a rejection of Christ and a rejection of the Father. The promise frees us from the responsibility to see that the scales of justice are ultimately balanced because he'll take care of that. And frankly, we lack the authority to do it anyways. And this frees us to extend the mercy of God and repentance 
and the repentance of sins to anyone who's willing to listen. <coughs> so I'd argue that the promise of judgment here is perhaps one of Jesus' most loving promises. Paradoxically, I think it's one of His most loving promises. We have the, then Jesus moves to the authority of the messengers. The 72 go, go out and they come back. And there's a few things that they discuss. You see, as their responsibility depends on God, so does their authority. First, we see that they had the authority over spiritual powers. Jesus says that, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And, and, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. And Christ is changing something in the order of the cosmos as He's reconciling it. The organization of the spiritual power structures of, of, of everything is being overturned as His kingdom is coming in. And I think that's what the, this picture of Satan falling from his position is. And like Paul tells us in Ephesians, that we are to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the devil. And the armor comes from the gospel of this kingdom. Second, they have an authority because of their kingdom citizenship. Notice that Jesus says, don't rejoice over the successful spiritual warfare that you have. Not to mean that in a complete or utter sense, because Jesus himself is cheering on the fact that he saw Satan fall from heaven, right, like lightning. But in a comparative sense, that the power that they have is nothing compared to, or the power that they have is nothing without, your name's being written in heaven, And I do wonder if when he said that, he looked at Judas in the eyes. You see, one doesn't grab for spiritual authority for authority's sake like Simon the magician did in Acts. Rather, we are united with Christ first. That's, that's the glory. That's, that's what's wonderful, the most wonderful thing. But because we're united with Christ, we are then given authority by Him, from Him. And so our authority is because of our kingdom citizenship. Last, it's an authority by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not just rejoicing that Satan is falling or rejoicing that we have kingdom citizenship, but Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit in verse 21. He rejoices in the work that the Holy Spirit does, that it's the Father's plan. The Father hands the kingdom to Christ, and Christ, by the Spirit, uh, reveals, it re the Spirit reveals that kingdom to those who enter it. If you've been reading along with us in our Bible reading plan for the year, then you've read uh, John 8 and 9 this weekend. And Jesus is saying essentially the same thing in John 8 and 9 when He talks about the judgment and He talks about the man whose eyes are opened. So the Spirit has to do that. You Pharisees, your eyes are physically open, but they're shut spiritually. But this man's eyes were, were closed physically, but now they've been opened because I opened his eyes spiritually as well. And he sees the kingdom and he believes in Christ. And that is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. says that, that many prophets and kings desired to see what we see. 
But now in Christ, we know after his ascension that we all, all of us who are in Christ, receive the Spirit. And in Christ, all of us are messengers like the prophets. And in Christ, everyone rules with him in his kingdom over the powers of evil. But there's one last critical piece that, that I think we can't miss, and it's the heart of the messenger. And friends, we've, we've, I'm sure you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan a hundred times, and, and I'm not going to get into all the details of the story. I'm going to skim over some of those things that probably you've heard before, and I want to concentrate on the ones that are most critical to this message and to the overall passage today. You see, a lawyer gets up to test Jesus and ask him what, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus refers him to the law. The, the lawyer is an expert in the law. He should know. What's the law say? And the lawyer answers what you'd expect him, an, an expert in the law, to answer. You know, it's, it's like your catechism question for the, the, the future lawyer in, in Israel. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, love God totally. He quotes Leviticus 19.18, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Those are, those are the, the Sunday school answers. <clears throat> and Jesus says, do this and you'll live. <coughs> that is, do it, abide in it, continue in it, and you'll live. The person who has faith will live according to the law and persist in the law. <clears throat> and you say, well, maybe that sounds a little legalistic. Who can do that? But even in the Old Testament, the law was never meant to be heartless works. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to love the Lord your God with all your what? Your heart. Your heart. It's the first thing. You can't even, you can't even begin to do the law unless your heart is right to God. You can't even start in it. Hosea 6 God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. If, you're, if your heart is not set to, towards, you know, by faith towards love to God, then you can't even begin in it. And Jesus is about ready to reveal this. So, so he gives the right answer, and, and Jesus says, oh, good job, you know, do that and, and you'll live. And perhaps because the response is so simplistic, and, and maybe the lawyer is a little embarrassed about that, he, he decides to ask another question, which, listen, it's just never a good idea to do this with Jesus. You, you're going to get owned, okay? And so he says, you know, well, then who is my neighbor? And this is sort of like when I was a youth pastor, and uh, the high school boy would come up to me and would say, well, Cody, youth pastor Cody, um, tell, like, exactly, I'm, I got a girlfriend now. Like, exactly how much can I do with my girlfriend physically before I'm sinning? Right? And you're going, okay, you've already missed the point. You're, or, you're already off. Your heart is already wrong, Right? You, 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 you want to know how much sinning you can get away with before you're sinning. You're not even wanting to love God. And so with that, Jesus tells a story. Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story in, in, in response, and it's surprising, it's revealing. We might expect here for him to tell a story about a Samaritan who goes, who's traveling and gets beat up, and this wonderful Jew who saves the day. That's what we would might expect him to do. And that would have been remarkable, right? Because Jews didn't, you know, help Samaritans. 
You go, well, this is the kind of Jew you need to be like. You need to be like the kind of Jew that, that, that loves the Samaritan. That, that would have been already above and beyond for Jesus to use that, but that's not what the story he tells, is it? In this story, a man is beaten and robbed, and it's the Samaritan who loves him. It's the Samaritan who shows him mercy. And what Jesus is saying is, look, it's so much about the heart that it's not even about being Jewish, that the, that the Samaritan can be right with God. But the kind of faith that, that gives us a heart to love God and love our neighbor, it only comes by the way of the Holy Spirit that we saw in verses 21 and 22. And that is how you inherit eternal life. And if the Spirit has done that in you, then you will then go and show mercy to others. This is how Jesus interprets the law. And this is seen in merciful love. And so he says to him, go, hey, lawyer, expert in the law, Jew of all Jews, Go and be like that Samaritan. See, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Presuming to seek to find out who he could get away with not loving. Who do I have to love, Jesus? And Jesus' response is essentially, the question you should be asking is, who are you, lawyer? What is your heart? Are you where you need to be. Followers of Jesus are messengers for Jesus. And that message is a merciful message of reconciliation to all who trust Christ. And for some reason, church, in God's wisdom, He's given it to us. But here's the difference. When my kids go to share that message with their sibling, they go away from me. I don't know what they're saying. But listen, if you're in Christ, when you go to share that message, God is with you because His Spirit is with you. And it doesn't depend on you. He will help you. And so you can, you can do this freely. You don't have to carry that burden and responsibility. The authority of the Spirit is with you. It's only by the Spirit you can do it anyways. but our hearts are absolutely critical. And so I want to conclude with what Paul says in, to set up the earlier passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that I shared. Just before that, he says this, in, starting in verse 12. He says, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Listen, listen to this. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. <laughs> 